being the longtime Latin student I am, I always love hearing all that. Thank you. I take from my text this morning the 25th verse of the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Mark. For to those who have, more will be given. And from those who have nothing, even what they have, will be taken away. Please pray with me. Holy and loving God, the source of insight and wisdom, help us as we wrestle with difficult texts. Encourage us to go deeper in our interpretation, that we can find new truths within your holy word. Amen. I'm sure you've had the experience. You settle into your most comfortable chair, the one you like to read in. You turn on your trusty reading light and begin flipping through the wafer-thin pages of your Bible. Turn to the Gospels and read as you're going through a passage. You come across a line that makes you pause. Go back and read it again. Did Jesus just say that, you wonder? Can't be. Jesus wouldn't say something like that. You scratch your head, look at those words at the page more closely, and then move on to something else. But that line, that phrase keeps coming back to you. It disturbs you. You lie in your bed staring at the ceiling. What exactly does that line of Jesus' mean? How to make sense of it? What am I to do about it? Well, our text for today has just one of those lines. One of those troubling passages, at least to me, in the Bible. And Jesus said to them, pay attention to what you hear. The measure you give will be the measure you get, and still more will be given to you. For to those, to those who have, more will be given. And from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. And from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. Is it just me, or does that sound absolutely nothing like Jesus? I mean, nothing at all. It seems a whole lot more like Ayn Rand, or some pessimistic view of life. Those people who have a lot, they'll get even more. Those who have little, what little they have, will be taken away. Jesus couldn't really have said that, could he? What do we make of that? And you know, this isn't the only line in this chapter that gives me this reaction. There was a line in the reading from last week that, simula- that, that similarly seems out of character for Jesus. Did you notice that? After Jesus tells the famous parable of the sower to the crowd, he then pulls his disciples aside and speaks to them. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything comes in parables, in order that they may indeed look but not perceive, and may indeed listen but not understand, so that they may not turn again and be forgiven. That's pretty weird coming from Jesus, don't you think? Here's Jesus saying that he speaks in parables so that the crowd does not understand what he's saying, so they cannot turn again to God and be forgiving? That's the purpose of the, of the parable, is to obfuscate, to muddy the waters. Surely we have to be missing something. What are we supposed to do with texts like this? I don't know about you, but I'm confused. And if we're honest, when we come across disturbing words of Jesus, our tendency is simply to ignore them. We gloss over them and pretend they're not there. Few preachers focus on them. After all, why spend valuable preaching time trying to discern these confusing, hard, and seemingly contradictory lines of Jesus? Let's focus on the rest, right? 
that strikes me as somehow dishonest. If we take this text seriously, if we take the so-called red-letter words of the Bible seriously, we really do need to engage even with the hard texts of Jesus. Jesus is our teacher, our moral guide. We see him as the manifestation of what God wants for us. Therefore, when he says something that disturbs us, we need to look at it more carefully and figure out what to do with it. It demands a response. At first, delving into a difficult text might seem intimidating. The stakes are high. But you know, the riskiness of it makes it kind of exciting. A little fun here on Sunday morning. It's like a grand adventure. It's as though we're on the crew of the Golden Hind with Sir Francis Drake, ready to circumnavigate the globe, our biblical globe. You ready to push off, all set for this voyage of biblical discovery? Thankfully, we're not alone in this adventure. The scholars in the world have not left us without resources. Laboring away in their stacks of books and ivory towers, academics have provided us with an array of tools to use when approaching any passage. One of my professors in Divinity School called it building up the arrows in our interpretive quiver. It turns out that there are all sorts of ways to approach these texts. And oh, the insights we might find. First scholarly insight the first guide to help us out, is one of the most important. It unlocks a range of potential interpretations. It all begins with the acknowledgement that the Gospels themselves are not eyewitness accounts. This is common knowledge for most of you, but the implications of this statement are profound for interpretation. The Gospels, according to scholars, were written between 30 and 70 years after the death of Jesus. Moreover, they are composite accounts stitched together from stories and lists of sayings that were circulating about Jesus. That means that we don't know the original context of Jesus' sayings. We don't know what the situation actually was when Jesus spoke these lines. What scholars call the, quote, setting in life. Maybe if we figured out a likely original context for this passage, we can, we can discover some new and more palatable interpretation. So what was the original setting? It's anyone's guess, but it's anyone, anyone's guess because these lines likely came from a list of Jesus' sayings. Hmm. The measure you give will be the measure you get, and still more will be given to you. Maybe this was a line from Jesus' recipe book. Think about that. He and his disciples were trying to raise some money for their youth group by compiling and selling a recipe book. I'm sure you've done that here at FCC. Jesus' recipe is a line of advice for future bakers. The measure you give will be the measure you get, and still more will be given to you. It's the power of yeast, people. Great recipe suggestions from Jesus. It's just too bad that Mark messed up the original context. Then again, maybe this is not about cooking. It could be about a measure of cloth or something else entirely. I'm sure if we thought about it a bit more, we could come up with some other possible contexts for this enigmatic saying. This is where historical details can come in handy. Maybe there's some background to first century forms of measure. Is a standard measure large, like two gallons? If so, Jesus could hardly be referring to cooking or or baking bread. Maybe the second half of the passage was a common aphorism to describe first century society under the Romans. For to those who have, more will be given. And from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. Perhaps that was a rallying cry for insurrectionists that insurrectionists used. Historical details can dramatically change our interpretation when we're trying to discern the original context of a passage, right? Having fun yet? 
We could, of course, ignore or dismiss any speculations about the original context of Jesus' words. After all, we have absolutely no way of knowing what the original context was. We can only take educated guesses. So another approach, the most basic approach, is to look at what Mark did with the passage. If Mark truly did choose his own context for this passage, then he had a reason for doing so. Mark was trying to convey a certain message. What might that message be? What is the context that we find here? All the parables in Mark chapter 4 seem to have a similar theme. The parable of the sower and the following parables of the mustard seed and the seeds planted on the ground all speak to the power of the word. If someone hears the word of God and embraces the kingdom of God, then amazing things happen. It seems to imply that Mark wanted a similar interpretation of the parables in our text for today. The word is about the kingdom. Uh, the word is about the kingdom is like a, the word about the kingdom is like a lamp put on the lampstand. Eventually, it will illuminate everything. Everything will be seen in the light of the kingdom someday. Similarly, those who understand the word will receive the full measure of what they understand. Those who get it will get even more, and those who don't get it, don't understand the word, what little they have will be taken away. Perhaps that's the best interpretation. But. Matthew uses these same phrases in different ways than Mark. The image of the lamp in Matthew refers not to the word or the kingdom of God, but to the disciples themselves. The disciples are the light of the world. You remember that one from the Sermon on the Mount? They are the salt of the earth. We find the last line of our passage in the parable of the talents in Matthew. The parable of the talents in Matthew refers to the end of the world. Those who use their talents and don't bury them will receive at the end of time more and more. Those who don't will be cast into the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here it's a statement of the end times. So which interpretations are right? Should we listen to Mark or Matthew? They have a very different take on Jesus, and so what should we do with this passage? In response to the different theologies and perspectives of, of the different biblical writers, some scholars claim we have to use the entire canon of the Bible to help interpret other parts of the Bible. According to these scholars, the canon has certain themes, certain emphases that should guide our reading of a text. One commentary I read said that the key to interpret this passage is to realize that it's actually referring to a passage in Ezekiel 17. According to that interpretation, Jesus' Jesus's reference to Ezekiel here likely would have been understood by many of his listeners. Not sure about how you feel, not, not sure about how you feel about the canon? Don't worry. We have other options. There are scholars who look at the structure of the text itself to find answers to its interpretation. Still others try and read the passage from a feminist or post-colonialist perspective. I hope you're beginning to see the range of interpretive possibilities that exist for nearly every passage of Scripture. We can look for the original setting in life. We can use historical details to alter our interpretation. We can analyze the context in, its fin in the final form of the passage or use other parts of the canon to illuminate our interpretation. We can rely on structuralism and post-structuralism to guide our reading. This is why I get so annoyed when people talk about what the Bible says, as though there's only one way to read a passage. The Bible says this. The Bible says that. The Bible says that homosexuality is wrong. The Bible says that wives must always obey their husbands and slaves their masters. The Bible says that you should give to whoever asks. The Bible says it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. Somehow I don't think Joel Osteen talks about that one very often. <laughs> the Bible says all sorts of stuff, but you can interpret the Bible in so many ways. 
There is no one way to interpret the Bible, just as there's no one way to interpret this text we have for today. Now, this is not to say that you can make the Bible say anything you want. Interpretation is not unlimited. You must wrestle with the words you find in the text. Words do have meaning. You must confront the fact that your interpretive community, whichever it is, whether it's FCC or somewhere else, puts boundaries around what interpretations are acceptable and what interpretations are not. Yet, even within these bounds, we are confronted with so many possible ways of reading the Bible. What are we to do about it? Normally, we don't consider these questions. But when we run into difficult texts, texts that make us pause and think, texts like the one we have for today, we are forced to consider the process of interpretation more closely. How should we interpret the Bible? What things constrain how we read a text? Thoughts? What's the best approach, the most authentic approach? While you consider that, I want you to think about something else. What first moved you about Jesus? I mean, the first time you read the Bible for yourself, what was it that drew you in? Each of us who are here has had some experience of God through interaction with Jesus. It could have been in reading the Bible, it could have been in worship, perhaps it was in serving others on a church mission trip, but something, at something at some point, began to move you about Jesus. What was it? For me, it was Jesus' radically different approach to the world and to the people around him. While our culture teaches us to worship power and money and influence, Jesus does something entirely different. Jesus says himself that he didn't come to didn't come for those who are well. He didn't preach, he didn't he did not preach to those whose life was perfect. He preached to those whose lives were not going well, to those who suffered from some physical ailment, to those who felt alienated or estranged from society at large. He valued those people in society whom others did not value at all. It had nothing to do with status. In fact, Jesus repeats again and again that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. This message, this mission, these teachings resonated so deeply with me when I first read them. They were like a breath of fresh air in my life, a total reorientation of the way things should be. In fact, Jesus' life and mission struck me as so radical at the time that when I, first confr- when I first confronted it for myself, that I insisted to others that I was not a Christian. I couldn't be. After all, I wasn't willing to give up absolutely everything to follow him. I was not willing to fully embrace everything he said and did. I had no illusions at the time about a domesticated gospel. This was challenging stuff. But it was so of God. It seemed so true deep in my soul that it changed me. The older I got and the more I read about the structural issues of poverty, racism, sexism, homophobia, the more more my view on Jesus began to shift. I'd go back and read the text and discover that Jesus was about far more than simply being kind to your neighbor. He was challenging the very structures and assumptions in his society that did much to harm those on the margins. Then I'd read something new or experience something else. And when I went back to the Bible, I'd refine and alter my interpretations. This cycle, this cycle of going, going to the text, then to an analysis of the world, and then back to the text again and again, has profoundly shaped my views, my lens, on the Bible. I cannot read the Bible today and not see it through the eyes of a Jesus who sought to transform the world and liberate people from suffering, poverty, discrimination, and fear. Those interpretations leap off the page when I read. But it's been a process. 
It's been a gradual unfolding. I would argue that the exact same thing is true for other people. Not that everyone interprets the Bible through the same lens as I do, but that their interpretation, like mine, is guided by their experience of Jesus and how that has been molded over time by life, by reading, and by a worshiping community. There is no one interpretation of the Bible. No one interpretation of a text. The Bible doesn't say just one thing, or really anything at all. The Bible is just a text. It doesn't speak. Humans do. Humans speak and interpret from a particular social location and from particular experiences and learnings. And it's important to name the context in which we are doing our interpretation, because our own context matters as much, if not more, than the words we find in the text. When Mark wrote his gospel, he wrote it through the lens of his experience of Jesus, through Mark's own life experiences, and in light of the worshiping community in which he was a part of, just like we do. He took the stories he heard and read and then compiled them into the gospel we have now. Mark was doing his best to tell the story of Jesus as he experienced it. The same thing is true for the other gospel writers, and most especially for the Apostle Paul. So what do we do when we come across difficult texts? How do we interpret them? Use the tools we have on hand, which, thanks to the work of scholars, are extensive. And we read, through the, te- and we read the text through the, lens of the Je- through the lens of Jesus that grows out of our experience and past interpretive efforts. The fact is that everyone does that. My hope is that we can be honest about it, rigorous about our interpretation, and that we can, ha- and, and we can own the perspective that we ourselves bring to the text. As a woman, you will read the text differently than a man will. If you're struggling to make ends meet financially, you'll read Jesus' words on money differently than someone who is a billionaire. I can't tell you how to interpret our text for today. I can't stand up here and say to you that the one, this one interpretation that is correct. But what I can do is give you my reading of it. As I said, I interpret the text from a perspective of liberation. Jesus is someone speaking to those on the margins. I can use the tools of biblical interpretation, the arrows in my quiver, to aid me in my interpretive task. So, do you want to see what that looks like? What it looks like for this passage? And Jesus said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. The measure you give will be the measure you get, and still more will be given to you. For to those who have, more will be given. And from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. It turns out that the first line, Pay attention to what you hear, it's a phrase that Jesus uses in Mark when he wants to characterize the views of his opponents. The Greek word is more often translated elsewhere as beware than simply pay attention. It comes up in Mark 8.15, Mark 12.38, and again in Mark chapter 13. Each time we see that word, we see Jesus cautioning against what the Pharisees are saying or doing. Here, I would argue, Jesus is doing the exact same thing. He wants us to beware of that logic, the logic we find so often in writers like Ayn Rand, who say that unregulated capitalism is the only way to go. Hey, it's just the market, they say. People are homeless. It's just the market. You can't do anything about it. The measure you give will be the measure you get. Some people don't have health insurance. Can't afford housing on a minimum wage income. Teachers don't get paid enough. Sorry, that's just the market. We wouldn't want to interfere with that. The measure you give will be the measure you get. There's really no other way to do things. Haven't you heard? To those who have, more will be given. And from those who have nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. That's just the way of the world. What does Jesus say to this in response? Beware. Pay attention to what you're hearing. Listen to the parables of the kingdom of God. Light will be shown on this eventually. 
You don't put a lamp under a bushel basket. Wait until the light comes. He is cautioning against the mindset that, those, that, that to those who have, more will be given. And from those who have, what little they have will be taken away. That's what he's trying to say in this text. Don't buy into the false narrative that is sold to you. Find the way that liberates those in bondage. There is a way to have a thriving market economy that doesn't leave people behind. There is a way to provide and support those who need it. There is a vision of God for the future that includes that. It's called the kingdom of God. It's good news. Now, is this the only interpretation of the text? No. But when I survey all the ways I could read this text, this interpretation by far makes the most sense to me. Is it because of who I am and how my faith has been shaped? Of course. It's the interpretation that resonates with the Jesus that I know and the Jesus I meet when I raise my voice and worship with all of you. If I were to guess, I guess you've met a similar Jesus here too.